Hello, welcome back to Scripture Central. I'm Lynn Hilton Wilson here to talk about Come Follow Me in the Book of Second Nephi, and this is... This is Jack Welch, and I'm glad to be back with you. I know you're having a great time studying the Book of Mormon this year, and we'd love to be with you on this wonderful occasion. Today's chapters, 26 to 30 in Second Nephi, talk about the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. And it's a very important message for Nephi to reassure his people that God is going to honor his covenants and that they will be restored and that there will be a restoration and that all things will come to pass. These are all Nephi's commentary on the Isaiah chapters. You know, he's carefully chose which Isaiah chapters he wanted that would be applicable not only to his people, but also, as he said, they are applicable to our day and age. I say what Nephi is doing here is likening the scriptures unto himself. And we, of course, can liken them unto ourselves yeah, yeah. also. <laughs> yeah. But the point is, uh, we don't read the scriptures as ancient uh, times past. No, they're relevant to ourselves, and Nephi sets the model in doing that. And you know, and even though this is commentary on those earlier chapters of Isaiah, I noticed that in chapters 26, 27, 28, and 29, he still quotes new sections of Isaiah, just a verse or two or a phrase or two. Um, so even though we've got commentary, he's still filling in the commentary with many more. I think we talked about in the past, one-third of Isaiah is quoted in the Book of Mormon. Yeah, and then particularly we'll see chapter 29. And that, I think, has 16 different ch areas of the Book of Mormon where that chapter is quoted. So that's yeah, that's, that's a rich great. one. Yeah, that's a very rich one. As we get started with 2 Nephi chapters 25 to 30, let's take a couple minutes here to remember how Nephi, back in two sections of 1 Nephi, prophesied about the future in four main stages. I remember this. Let's go back to it was the tree of life vision. And Nephi saw first the coming of Christ. That was in 1 Nephi chapter 11. And then second, the rejection of Christ by his people. They're scattering. And then third, we go to the day of the Gentiles. That's when the restoration is coming up in 1 Nephi chapter 13. And then finally, the last phase, four, is in 1 Nephi 14, with the restoration of Zion and the victory of good over evil. The first time he went through this, he's using Lehi's prophecy. Yeah, right, right. Now he will turn to Isaiah. Oh, it's brilliant. To show that... Lehi is consistent with what he finds on the brass plates. Oh, that's terrific. In the book of Isaiah. And then Nephi again will use that same four-stage prophetic worldview a second time in chapters 19, 20, 21, and 22 at the end of 1 Nephi. That's when he includes the Isaiah chapter, isn't it? Isaiah 48 and 49. And what's more, we now see how Nephi used that same four-stage prophetic framework in 2 Nephi chapters 25 to 30, to explain the long Isaiah quotation from Isaiah chapters 2 to 14 that Nephi has given us in 2 Nephi chapters 12 to 24, to which Nephi will add famous prophetic texts from Isaiah 29 in chapter 27. Nephi's view is so consistent, clear, and authentic, and masterful. Who would have thought, seeing this overview, certainly makes this complex material much easier to follow. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Throughout these chapters that we're looking at this week, you'll see echoes of phrases and uh, 
uh, points that were in the earlier chapters that Nephi quoted extensively. So he's remembering those things, and he's hoping that we'll remember them too. But then he will go through and pick out certain words and phrases that will show up again in the commentary that's going on and what he's saying in chapters 26 to 30. Yeah, yeah. So he knows this text. He knows it well enough. He memorized it, or they probably did. In those days, to know the scriptures meant to be able to recite them. And it also speaks so highly of the translation process. This is such a tightly interwoven text. It's not like just a storyline going on about a family leaving. You know, very tightly woven. And the precision of the phraseology. Oh, really? Says that uh, the translation isn't just going to do it one way on one occasion, but the, these phrases are being preserved and translated accurately. Yes, Let me give a couple yeah. examples. Yes, please. yes, please. I want to hear them. In Chapter 5 of Isaiah, that's 15 of 2 Nephi, verse 21, Isaiah says, Woe unto the wise in their own eyes, and prudent in their own sight. Well, if you go to chapter 26 of 2 Nephi, verse 20, Nephi will say, The Gentiles are lifted up in the pride of their eyes, and preach up unto themselves their own wisdom and their own learning. So he's using precisely those phrases, now making it specific that it's the Gentiles who will be doing this. Now, is that the only example you've got? No, we've got others. Uh, in chapter 3 of Isaiah, in verse 15, uh, we run across a very distinctive phrase that the wicked will, quote, grind the faces of the poor. When Nephi echoes that, verse 20, will do things that they may get gain and grind upon the face of the poor. So he's using that Isaiah phrase, which is so vivid. And to think of, you know, right in your face and they're ignoring the poor and, and demeaning the poor and rejecting them. And Nephi now uses that in, a, uh, in the warning that he's given, giving, but prophesying that these things will happen in the day that he sees when there will be, uh, as we'll talk about uh, in a minute, there will be problems. And finally, let me give another one that's in Second uh, Nephi chapter 27, verse 3. So Nephi in his own words says, Yea, it shall be unto them, even as unto a hungry man, which dreameth, and behold, he eateth, but he awakeneth, and his soul is empty, and he is faint, and yet his soul hath appetite. Well, that's uh, a lot like what Isaiah had said in Isaiah chapter 9. It says, And he shall snatch on the right hand and be hungry, and he shall not be satisfied. They shall eat every man the flesh of his own arm. Nephi had absorbed Isaiah to the degree that these words just come tumbling out elsewhere. Yeah. In addition to the verbal impact, he's now likening these two situations where these are important. They're useful. And uh, it's, it's a wonderful way of citing these materials. <clears throat> he can't, of course, quote them chapter and verse because they didn't have chapters. Of and course, verses. yeah, yeah. 
but he can quote them precisely enough that uh, people will yeah see them will see that Nephi is speaking with authority. So look for all of these as we go through. Now I presume some of these are not in our footnotes. You gotta hey, you gotta look for these. You gotta look for these. Well, that's very helpful. I'm very grateful that we have on the archives the. John W. Welch notes are available where you can find these details. And there's many more examples that Jack has there for you if you'd like to go on our archive. As we begin chapter 26, there's a nice chiasm in the first nine verses to get us showing what his focus is. He starts out by talking about the Redeemer living. I just want to talk about the main point that he's trying to get to. So as he begins talking in verse 1 about Christ has risen from the dead and he's going to show himself to the people of Nephi, he then moves on to the fact that the Messiah is going to come. They talk about his birth and his death. Come to his own people. Come to Nephi's people. Given to my people. Exactly. Yeah. And then the center point in um, this beautiful structure talks about after the blood of the prophets are taken the proud and they that do wickedly, the day shall come that they shall burn up. And you had just finished reciting this. And I thought, oh, this is the center of his message. He's using this Isaiah lookalike. Um, and the Lord of hosts, for they shall be as stubble. He was going to burn them up. Then this is all because they killed the prophets. They swallowed them up. And then we end again with the same hope of our Savior um, in verse 9. But the son of righteousness shall appear to them. You know, this he he often has the opposites available for us to see, the greatness of God and the awfulness of humanity, and the hope that God's plan will always provide for us if we can um, keep the plan in mind. So what does Nephi say that's going to happen to his people? Oh, it's just awful, and I'm sure it applies to us as well. Starting with chapter 26, verse 7. Oh, the pain, the anguish, my soul for the loss of the slain of my people. And he's so real. We not only have in our scriptures this image of our prophet having to see these things, but it hurts. He's a man with feelings. I, Nephi, have seen it, and it well nigh consumeth me before the presence of the Lord. But I must cry unto my God, thy ways are just. And as we see the calamities unfolding and these terrible challenges of our day and age, may we fall on our knees and say, thy ways are just. You know, we do not see the whole picture, but God does. And and I think that's very reassuring. And not just to know that they're just, but I think it's reassuring to all of us to know that God is aware of it. God is in control. This isn't just a random world. Verse 9 is a beautiful message. After the Son of Righteousness shall appear unto them, and he shall heal them, they shall have peace with him until three generations shall have passed away. I think this is all talking about 4th Nephi. Um, But the speedy destruction comes, and he talks about their pride and everything else that brings down their destruction again. And so if Nephi knows that there's going to be destruction. Why does he bother with all this record keeping? And That's why we have it on golden plates. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he trusted the Lord on that one. And, and that's what really drives Nephi. He knows that even though his posterity and lots of things, people come and go, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. 
and he knows that the Book of Mormon will come forth and we will know of the things that he is writing of. That's Nephi's motivation and testimony. And it's every nation. I'm still in verse 13. Every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, working mighty miracles and signs and wonders among the children of men according to their faith. And that's our day and age. He says, I prophesy in verse 14 unto you concerning the last days, concerning the days when the Lord God shall bring these things forth. I think he's talking again about the record that Nephi is writing, the Book of Mormon, um, unto the children of men. And then he says, after my seed's going to dwindle in unbelief, that's verse 15. Skipping down a little bit, he says, after they have been brought down in the dust, even that they are not, yet the words of the righteous shall be written and the prayers of the faithful shall be heard. That's so encouraging. And those who have dwindled in unbelief shall not be forgotten. So God is going to recognize every one of us. As the Lord said during his ministry, he knows the hairs on our head. Yeah, he does. And he says something about the dust. He even knows that somehow these plates are going to have to be buried. And they will come out of the, the ground and uh, they will whisper out of the dust. Now, that's another Isaiah connection. Isaiah 29 verse 4. Another beautiful example that Nephi gives as he's giving this explanation of Isaiah is in verse 24. He's talking about God, and he said, He doeth not anything, save it be for the benefit of the world. For he loveth the world, even that he layeth down his own life, that he may draw all men unto him. This all men is repeated in 25 and 26 and 27 and 28 and 20 and 30. And, you know, I just have them all circled. It's 33. You know, this idea that all are going to be saved and that his motivation is love is so beautiful. One reason why I like this motivation of love is because most of Christianity, most of the biblical traditions do not have Moses chapter 1 verse 39. My work and my glory is because I want you to succeed. But we do have this verse. And 24 says, everything I do is because I love you. And then the universal nature of that, too, is unusually strong here. He layeth down his life that he may draw all men unto him. And then he brings this universality that you mentioned, all, 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 any, any, you know, the, that he repeats a dozen times at the end of verse 33. And he denieth none that come unto him, black and white, bond and free, male and female. And he remembereth the heathen and all are alike unto God, both Jew and Gentile. Nephi has an amazingly expansive and encompassing, embracing view here. The point here that's emphasized is the invitation. He inviteth all, but he still, as Lehi has taught, requires each person to come in their own time and make their decision on their own agency. God is not going to force anyone, but he invites and welcomes all. And in the ancient world, the idea of all men being equal was hardly even imagined. He invites all of any kind or nation, kindred, tongue, capability. And this, I think, is so inspired and so universal. 
it goes farther, I think, even than what people in the American Revolution were thinking of at that point. Well, chapter 27 um, cites a little bit of Isaiah 29, but we get Isaiah 29 in, what is it, 16 chapters, I think? It's scattered, isn't it? Uh, we have enough allusions to it and uses of the phrases that we know that Nephi was well aware of chapter 29, but for some reason he doesn't quote the whole chapter as he did with these earlier chapters in the book of Isaiah. Like most of them are paraphrases. Yeah. So I don't have any particular ideas about why Nephi doesn't give us the whole chapter, except I think he wants to focus on certain things that are relevant to the coming forth of the book, where the chapter talks about a few more things than just that. So it's more, he, he's already selectively interpreting Isaiah 29 for us. And I also feel like, this is one of those evidences of don't say because the, there's King James Isaiah here that it's a false book. You know, this is one of those examples that there, Nephi is so carefully crafting. You know, his scalpel is exactly taking out the verses that are the most important. This to me is a greater evidence of the antiquity of the book and evidence that it came to pass, as Joseph said. I hadn't thought of it that way, but by not quoting the whole thing, it's more accurate. It's more focused. Yes, on what he wants to say, on his mission, on his focus, on his message. But then what you're imagining here is a challenge to someone. Take a chapter, any chapter in the Bible, yeah. and selectively remember four or five different scriptures in that chapter that fit into a very tight narrative about something that either has happened or will happen. Now, that's what Joseph is challenged with here. He doesn't have Isaiah 29 in front of him. In fact, Emma said they didn't have a Bible in the house then. And if he had had a Bible, he couldn't have put it in his hat. It'd <laughs> yeah. be too big <laughs> yeah, yeah. and look into the hat to read it. No, and he hasn't memorized this either. So what we get now here is not just a quotation, but... And not just a paraphrase. It's a carefully crafted sermon and message for his people. Selectively picking words and phrases that now tell a story that is particularly relevant to the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. Let's look at Second Nephi chapter 27. So what does Nephi say this chapter 29 of Isaiah yields for us in understanding how the book is going to come forth? For example, in verse 3 of chapter 27... Nephi says that it's going to come forth at a time when all the nations that fight against Zion and that distress her shall be as a dream of a night vision. In other words, just a phantom. No, they won't have any substance. But it will come forth at a time when there will be opposition to the, uh, the restoration of the church and to Zion. And it's interesting that as you just read from Second Nephi, I'm in Isaiah, and it's quite different. So either the brass plates or the inspiration that he received, we have some different texts here, and it's always good to read the two side by side. He may be adapting or modifying. Correct, because it's just a commentary right now. We're in the middle of Nephi's commentary. That's right. For behold, the Lord hath poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep. Is he talking about the text of the book, do you think? What's he talking about there? He's talking about the world. 
those who fight against Zion. Yeah, they're staggering with strong drink. Yes, yes, okay. And so for a time, there's a period of, you might say, uh, dark ages. But it also says in verse 5, that's only in the Book of Mormon, the last phrase, because of your iniquity. So they don't know about these things because of their weakness. But then this book comes to pass. And starting in verse 6, the words of the book are them that have slumbered, which is not actually in Isaiah 29, but it's here. And then Nephi goes back now to the Isaiah text. Um, the book is going to be sealed. It's going to be a book with revelation from God. It's going to be a book that's delivered unto a man. That's verse um, 9. Um, verse 10, the words that are sealed should not be delivered. Anyway, we learn a lot about this book in these next few chapters, next few verses, excuse me. Yes, in verse 7, as you've mentioned, Nephi emphasizes that this book is going to be sealed. Yeah, yeah. And what does that mean? When we think of sealing something, of course, we think of just uh, uh, licking the envelope and sealing it shut, <laughs> right? But when you seal a book, how do you do that? Well, when a document in the ancient world was sealed... A person had their, their seal. This was their personal seal. It was kind of like their signature. Like a wax seal that you then put your ring on, the king's ring or something? One way to seal would be to tie something shut, uh -huh. put wax on the knot, uh -huh. and then put your seal, impress your ring or your stamp seal on that wax. So that would work if it were a scroll. But what about if it's a book? Well, the book could be sealed on the outside where it could be, you'd have uh, some kind of wrapping that would tie it shut. But there are two kinds of sealings going on here. One is that one part of the Book of Mormon will be sealed. And that's where certain plates would actually be bound by some kind of sealing device or straps or maybe metal. And normally when something like that in a document would be sealed up, it would also then bear the seal impressions of the person who had sealed it. Okay. So I presume that would be Mormon or Moroni. Moroni, I think, is the one who seals. He says, I'm sealing this. Okay. So he's putting his stamp of approval on it to say, this is authentic. This is my final work. And if this seal has been broken... It's possible that somebody else has gotten in here and tampered with the text, maybe taken pages out or done something. So if the book is delivered, sealed, you have confidence that it is authentic, that it is accurate. We don't know what's on the portion, the sealed portion, but the normal practice throughout the ancient world was to provide a backup copy. Sometimes the sealed portion will be a summary, the essence of what has been contained in the open document. Sometimes it will actually be more detailed and the sealed part of the document will give greater instructions that only a judge needs to know to enforce the document. There are thousands of these sealed documents that have been found. Many of them have legal significance or business significance. Of course, because you go through a lot of work to write something twice. And Jeremiah talks about how when he buys a piece of land from his nephew, they sign the documents, both the open portion and the sealed portion, and then they seal the sealed portion and put them all together in a jar and bury them that they might be preserved for a long time. Ancient documents were sealed like this. In fact, 
a recent issue of an archaeological magazine just reported the discovery of a huge trove of Babylonian documents that were sealed, and they date back to the 18th century B.C., and that's just to say this is very standard practice. Now, why do we find these collections of these uh, sealed documents? And they're being kept there because as the parties use the open part of the document, which they have multiple copies of, those copies may get damaged or, heaven forbid, changed. changed. <laughs> and there may be... A dispute over the changed words, yes. And there may be uh, some uh, incompleteness. The open document may not give all the details, as I've mentioned. And if the parties can't agree on what the uh, what is required by this document, then they can take it to a judge. And under the law everywhere, only a judge could open the seal. Because the judge is now breaking the seal opening the open, he's now opening and yeah. using the sealed portion to compare it with the open portion. And that's the way in which you know that the document is accurate and how to enforce it. So what Isaiah is imagining, what we're seeing, is that this document is so important that it needs to be completed and put together and bound up with the utmost uh, precautions and safety measures to be sure that the word of the Lord comes down the way it's supposed to. So you think Nephi is reading Isaiah, realizing that Isaiah is referring to his record. Ne Nephi is well aware of what's going to happen here. He's already seen it in vision a couple of times. He'd been talking about it. I don't want to miss verse 11. And the day that the book shall come forth, the words of the book, which are sealed, shall be read upon the housetops. I think that when we get the sealed portion, there will be details that will be helpful to us. There will be validation that we will know that the record is true, that we, in fact, have had enough. But let me finish with verse 11 here in chapter 27. They shall be reading it by the power of Christ, and all things shall be revealed unto the children of men, which ever have been among the children of men, which are ever will be unto the end of the earth. Jack, this is happening right now. Right. People are hearing the words of the book by our satellite dishes on the mountaintops, on the hilltops, and on in the how many languages? And in how many languages? But we finally get to the third, the three witnesses next. Verse twelve. Wherefore, at that day, when the book shall be delivered unto a man whom I have spoken, the book shall be hid from the eyes of the world, and the eyes of none shall see it, save it be three witnesses. And then he goes on and says, they will behold it by the power of God. And then they say, oh, there might be a few others, but they're only through God. <laughs> so we have a few other witnesses coming according to the will of God. That's verse 13. Yeah, and the word few... Uh -huh. uh, traditionally means eight. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, it's in First Peter chapter 3 when Peter says that as Christ goes and preaches to the spirits in the underworld, uh -huh. he talks about those that were destroyed at the time of the flood, there in the spirit world, save it be a few, oh, meaning eight, that yes. were saved. Okay, 
And because of that, the word few takes on this uh, connotation of eight witnesses. So we have a few authorized here. And Joseph Smith says, well, what this gives me now is permission to show the records to the three. And of course, the the three witnesses will see the plates as uh, revealed by Moroni to them. And there, there are none others that will see it except for a few. And those are the eight. That Joseph shows the plates to later. But they, when they're translating as this is when Martin and Oliver and because they're translating this part, I think, at the Whitmer home. So the Whitmers hear this, too. So that's when they get so excited. Can we please have this opportunity? And that's when we start getting the revelations and the, the Doctrine and Covenants on the three witnesses is after they're translating this. You're right. Okay. And amongst those few others, I'm going to include Mary Whitmer um, that we talked about in the introduction, as well as the brothers and the families that were involved with the Whitmer families and the Smith families, because we really didn't have too many other people that were aware of what was going on at that time. What else do we find here in this chapter 27? Well, in verse 14, I love this invitation. And Jack, this is for you and me and every other person that has read the book and believes it from a witness from God. He says, the Lord God will proceed to bring forth the words of the book and in the mouth of many witnesses, as seemeth him good, will he establish the word. I feel like that is our opportunity. Every chance we can get is to testify that these are the words of God and that we can draw closer to him through that. Nephi's whole purpose is to bring people to Christ. And I put my name right there on my scriptures by many witnesses. I am a witness that this book is the word of God. As many as seemeth good to God. Uh, This is a blessing. It it is. When you receive this blessing, when you know that the Book of Mormon is true and you're given the gift of a testimony, we know where it comes from. It comes from the Lord. And it will be given in his time, in his way, but if you don't start sharing it, you're going to lose it. You got to keep it shiny. You got to manifest your your witness. That's right. He's giving it to us for a purpose. And as we magnify that purpose, we are then blessed. But not, but not everybody who reads it gets it. And that's the next verse. Um, verse 15, given it to the Lord says, deliver the book, take these words that are not sealed and deliver them to another and that he may show them unto the learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And the learned shall say, Bring hither the book, and I will read them. Now, it's slightly different in Isaiah. There's uh, several, every single verse here is slightly changed. Yes, this is a paraphrase. Yeah, it's, he's just paraphrasing it. But, of course, we know the story very well. This is when Martin Harris has already written out a few of those characters of the reformed Egyptian and taken them to see if there's any validation. That's right. So that's verse 15 and 16 and 17. Verse 19 continues on. The Lord will deliver again the book of the words to him that is not learned. And the man that is not learned shall say, I'm not learned. And that's our prophet Joseph. And then in verse 20, the Lord assures him, I am able to do mine own work. But he says in 21, don't touch the sealed portion. So that's still coming. That is, uh, needs to be protected and 
at some point will be useful. We're not sure when. And in the same vein of the Book of Mormon coming forth as this marvelous work, verse 23 says, For behold, I am God, and I am a God of miracles. And speaking of miracles, you go down to verse 26. Here we now pick up another uh, paraphrase of Isaiah 29, verse 14, where in Isaiah it reads, Therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder. In Hebrew, the word marvelous and wonder are the same word. Yeah. And it, it refers to or means a miracle. A miracle so a miracle. it will be a super miracle, a double <laughs> miracle. It will yeah. be a miraculous work and a miracle. So it's a way of saying, yes, this is going to be a different kind of book than the world's ever seen before. And yes, it will push people to a point of saying, I can't explain it. I don't know how the Book of Mormon got here. There is no adequate explanation for the book. And even saying it's a miracle doesn't really explain it. It just describes it. And what do people have to do with miracles? Well, Jesus performed miracles, and he did that so that people would know that he had come with power and that he was the Son of God. And so we have to accept a miracle as a sign of God. That's exactly what Isaiah is telling us here. In chapter 28, starting in about verse 3, he answers why we need this book. He says, he first introduces himself, you know, I am the Lord. And everyone that's going to build up a church that's not of the Lord, either they're going to contend for me, that's verse 4, they're going to teach with their learning, they're going to deny the Holy Ghost, they deny the power of God. All these things are why they don't accept the book. And in fact, verse 7, they say, eat, drink, and be merry. You know, it's all these attacks against the theology that's here. That's right. And it's not just how they will react to the Book of Mormon. It's how people react even today, against the gospel or the words of the prophets or uh, the, uh, the truths. The way that people react today against anything that is not their own wishes. It's a self-centered world that we live in right now. Well, that's right. And they want to be able to dismiss this. And, and yet what Nephi tells us, who is behind all of these different reactions? It's the adversary. It's our counterfeit, the devil. And... Why don't we learn more about the ways of the devil in the Bible? <laughs> you know, if, if you wanted to hide yourself, wouldn't you try to take yourself out of the Bible? You know, he's in the New Testament. Satan and the devil are in the New Testament. I mentioned this earlier. I made a chart of all the different places where the adversary is mentioned through, across Scripture by different names. Satan, devil, you know, the word devil's never mentioned in the Old Testament. But when we look at the Book of Mormon— we really get a much clearer picture. There are 10 times the references on the adversary, on the devil, whatever word we're using, Lucifer, whatever, um, in the Book of Mormon than we find in the Bible. And not only are there 10 times more, but 80% of the books in the Book of Mormon include references and descriptions of who our enemy is. And in the Bible, it's basically just the Book of Job. There's one in First Chronicles. There's one here. There's one there where they mention the word Satan or adversary, but 
it's really just the book of Job. That's that's all they've got. Yeah. And you've been very sensitive to picking that up. That's something that most people don't really uh, process. But let's take it one step further. Where can you find the best manual for identifying the ways of the adversary? I don't know. In the Book of Mormon. Oh, okay. Let's check on the chapter we're at right here. Chapter 28 of 2 Nephi. (laughs) I've gone through this, and we're not going to go through all of these. I don't want to give the adversary more time than he deserves, which is little. Well, obviously, Nephi already wrote it out, though, huh? Nephi has written it out for us. And he identifies who the adversary is right here. That's right. And it tells what the adversary will be doing. What are his strategies? The ways of the devil are so clearly laid out here for us. Satan will use a thread to start us, to lure us in. I like to call this whole chapter... Nephi's explanation of the ways of the devil. And this chart, uh, which actually lists about 40 ways in which the devil will try to get at people, especially in the latter days, has some wonderful uh, warnings for us. Look at verse 3. I am the Lord's. You know, I see this exclusivism, or maybe even the the devil is trying to counterfeit God. And in verse 4, Nephi says... The devil will want us to contend one with another. And just keep going down in verse 4. He will deny the Holy Ghost, which giveth utterance. This is, this is cynicism. And in verse 6, he will tell people in their hearts to believe it not. That sounds like modern skepticism. Oh, it sure does. And verse 7 is filled with skepticism. And then skipping down to verse 8, he will justify in committing a little sin. This this rationalizing is the same thing that this leniency of some faith traditions that the devil has empowered them with. For example, in, in verse 13, he says that people will be very proud of their richly appointed buildings and ostentation. We see that in the world around us, don't we? And keep going down. There's so many, but I just love verse 16. They turn aside the just for a thing of naught. They they trivialize the things of God. And also in that same verse 16, he will tell people to revile against that which is good, which is... uh, kind of way of just being mean. <laughs> yeah. Keep keep going down. Look at verse 20. Anger against that which is good. You know, this emotional fury that rises up in satanic thought. And we certainly see that in our culture today, which results in the warning in verse 21 that it's not God, but the forces of evil that will tell us that we should turn to carnal security. That's materialism. Let's just rely on things of a wealth. It's awful. So identify the devil. And Nephi doesn't go into great detail here, but I think he's given you the devil's handbook here in a way. (laughs) Well, there's 30 verses of this. I think this is an enormous important for us to learn. What did you call this? Your handbook on Satan? What was this? (laughs) Yeah, well, this this is, I call the handbook of... uh, of the devil's uh, workshop. It, so learn your enemy's tactics so that you can avoid them. Yeah, I, I kind of got this idea reading uh, C.S. Lewis' Screwtape Letters. C.S. Lewis says, you know, if you're going to fight your enemy, you have to know the enemy. And you, you have to imagine what are the strategies that he will use. And I thought, wow, this is a, 
a scriptural handbook. And yet it fits into our moral relativism. It fits into our elitist. It fits into our secular world so powerfully. You're absolutely right. It is as relevant for today as it has ever been. So this chapter, I hope everyone doing Come Follow Me this time around will take some time, maybe make it a game with your study group or your family and have people go through and identify how many different tactics you can find. But if you want to check what you come up with uh, against what I have, you can go to chart number 79 in charting the Book of Mormon. Oh, good. But don't look until you've made your own chart. <laughs> <laughs> but compare what you came up with with what I did. Okay. Well, with that, let's uh, turn to chapter 29. And here Nephi makes it clear that the coming forth of the Book of Mormon will be a a great sign to the world that the Lord has set his hand again to bring forth the gospel and to uh, complete his work. Now, he doesn't call it the Book of Mormon, obviously. He calls it a marvelous work and a wonder that you've already talked about. That's but do right. you think Nephi realized that this is what he's talking about when he says the marvelous work? Do you think he knew that this is what we meant? Even if he didn't, it's pretty amazing because Nephi um, knows that his book is going to be the one that slumbered if it came out of the dust. In verse 8... Nephi does make it clear that as he's talking about restoring his ancient covenant, that he's talking about a record, some kind of record. Now, does Nephi know that it's going to be his record? I think he does. He says, Wherefore, I speak the same words unto one nation like unto another. And when the two nations shall run together, the testimony of the two nations shall run together also. And I do this, that I may prove unto many that I am the same yesterday, today, and forever, that I speak forth my words according to my own pleasure. Well, I certainly think it sounds like Ezekiel. We've mentioned Ezekiel chapter 37 a couple of weeks ago, and the idea that there will be two sticks, and they will come together, and they will be one in our hand. And the stick of Judah and the stick of Ephraim would be scriptures, because they're scrolls, probably. And here we have... Two nations shall witness that I am God. Remember that Ezekiel 37 wasn't written at the time Nephi leaves Jerusalem. So he doesn't quote Ezekiel because oh. it wasn't written yet. But the Lord is giving the same prophecy to two prophets within a few decades of each other. And it's both about the restoration. And I think it's in both cases coming out of this principle that there will be two or three witnesses to all truth. Deuteronomy 17. We better have that memorized by the time we're finished with this class. <laughs> and turning to chapter 29, we begin with a beautiful, very elegant little chiasm. It's poignant, where Nephi will tell us what people will say, beginning with a Bible. We have got a Bible, and there cannot be any more Bible. And down in verse 6, he will repeat this triple threat, a Bible. We've got a Bible, and we need no more Bible. Within that bookend, what do we find, Lynn? Well, the very next thing is he calls them fools. And at the end? And that thou fool. <laughs> we have this repetition. Nephi then tells us that the Bible, it came from mine ancient covenant people. And he echoes that down below. I have not forgotten my people. Mm, I love it. And then going back up, 
what thank they, the Jews, for what they have received from them? And as we look down, we see a parallel there. And the parallel there is that God says he will return that which people have done wrongly to the covenant people upon their own heads. What comes next? What do the Gentiles mean? And we see that paralleled again. They have cursed and hated and not recovered them. And who is it that has cursed and hated them? The Gentiles. Do they remember? And he says almost exactly, have ye remembered? And then at the center, in bringing salvation unto the Gentiles, O ye Gentiles, you should then remember. Yeah, the turn completely allows us to see it from the Gentiles' perspective of receiving the truth. And that will introduce, in chapter 29, the way the book will come forth to the Gentiles. Which is our marvelous work and wonder. It is. And so, what a wonderful way to uh, turn into that whole section. Just look for these beautiful um, literary devices in every chapter. It really excites your scripture study. And, and Jack, I almost don't want to throw stones at anyone else. I want to look at my own life and say, is this how I feel about my scripture study? Am I seeking and yearning for this sealed portion, for the records of the other lost tribes? Am I seeking and learning to learn more from my living prophets as living in modern scripture? Do I want more scripture or do I say, oh, I've got too much already? <laughs> you know, I don't want to hear any more modern prophets. I don't want to hear any modern information about my day and age. I want to come up with my own ideas. I don't want to hear their ideas. See, that to me is all in this context of a Bible, a Bible. We have a Enough. And when you say, I have enough, you're basically saying, I, I'm satisfied. And I like how you referred to the other tribes, because when you go to chapter 29, verse 13, it of course says the Jews will have the words of the Nephites, and the Nephites will have the words of the Jews, but the Nephites and the Jews shall have the words of the lost tribes of Israel. Yay! And the lost tribes of Israel shall have the words of the Nephites and the Jews, so there's more to come. Oh! Oh, that is happy, happy news. Okay, chapter 30. It's actually Nephi's final thoughts upon the Isaiah material that he has quoted. And now talking about the nations and how the nations will be actually allowed to be numbered among the covenant people. And it's not just the Gentiles, the nations but particularly the Lamanites. And Nephi knows already that the Lamanites are not particularly faithful. He is now hoping that his nephews and nieces, his uh, next generation will, will come around. And I think that this, this last conclusion here is looking forward to a time when uh, all nations will uh, will be restored. And as he says in verse 9, with righteousness shall the Lord God judge the poor, reprove with equity for the meek, and he shall judge righteously. And then this, of course, is uh, the, the final verses where we, we mentioned earlier that uh, he quotes now Isaiah very specifically about the uh, lamb and the lion 
lying down together. Again, yes, another reference to the millennium. It's all over these vert chapters, even when he's quoting him directly. But let's go back. I have a little tiny detail to add on verse 6. Nephi is prophesying about how the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to come forth in verse 5. And then in verse 6, he said, they're going to rejoice. They shall know of the blessings that come from the hand of God. The scales of darkness are going to be able to fall from their eyes. So this spiritual blindness is going to be able to go. Their um, spiritual cataracts are, are being removed. And it says, save they shall be a pure and delightsome people. Now, that verse is one of these few that Joseph actually changed. So from the 1830, I believe Joseph had words in the hat from his vocabulary that he knew that he used to describe the ideas that were in his mind. But 10 years later, by 1840, Joseph knew after living in America for those 10 important years that white meant something different to some people. And he didn't want anyone to think that he was talking about a race or a skin color. And so in 1840, this is one of those words that Joseph chose to change because he felt it communicated more clearly what he was trying to describe. I'm talking about the purity within, nothing about the outside. Well, and that's that's clear from the scales of darkness. Yes. The darkness is something that covers your eyes, not your skin. So that's not, not an issue here. And when those scales of darkness fall from your eyes, then you become a pure or a holy and a delightsome person. So there's nothing racial about this. Well, Nephi does conclude, maybe we should conclude with uh, verses 17 and 18. Oh, these these are fabulous. Yes, please. How about if I read verse 17 and you read 18? There is nothing which is secret, save it shall be revealed. There is no work of darkness, save it shall be made manifest in the light. There's nowhere to hide here. And there is nothing which is sealed upon the earth, save it shall be loosed. And then verse 18, Wherefore all things which have been revealed unto the children of men shall at that day be revealed, and Satan shall have power over the hearts of the children of men no more for a long time. And now, my beloved brethren, I make an end of my sayings. We love the Book of Mormon, and we stand as witnesses that these are the words of God. And what a joy it is to be able to read these together and to share with anybody who wants to listen and read. Lynn, I really appreciate being able to do this, and what a joy it is really. Man and women are that they might have joy. And I think Nephi has done everything he can to make our lives as successful and enjoyable as possible. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. 